speak through him to us. Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Howard. Today's Howard time has been brought to you by SRP, just in case you were, you were wondering, right? They got you in their back pocket, don't they, sir? <laughs> Acts 19, turn there in your Bibles if you would. Uh, no greater filtration system than the Word of God. So people of God are important, Spirit of God is important, but neither of those things should work apart from the Word of God. How's that sound? So uh, that's one of the things that we continue to try to train ourselves up in, is how do, how do we make decisions? How do we live life according to the, the Word of God? There's no greater change agent in our lives than God's Word. God will not work apart from His Word, and with the Word comes the work of the Spirit and the people of God. I think those three things, you put those three things in, uh, you've got yourself a spiritual home run. Speaking of home runs... Do you guys hear the story of Drew Maggie, who had been playing 13 years in the minor leagues and finally got his major league debut the other night? Can you imagine the perseverance? 13 years, 1,300 plus games, and he finally gets to put on the major league uniform. You look in the audience, his family's there, they're just crying, right? How long has this guy been waiting to play in the majors? And guess how he did? He got a hit. Woohoo! We love stories like this, don't we? Don't we love the fact that this guy for 13 have you been doing anything for 13 years that you wish would change? For 13 years he stuck with a minor league team with the hopes of eventually playing in the majors and he finally got his opportunity. I'm going to tell you right now, the power of, of changing sometimes our, our status from minor league to major league, sometimes just the power of God to change us, to bring us to that next place, is a remarkable power at work. There's, you realize we as humans celebrate these moments more than we, we celebrate pictures from the James telescope coming back to us from the, from the universe, rather, you know, looking into the micro universe. We're, we're in awe and we're amazement of some of the things in creation, but nothing hits us deeper than these human interest stories and how people grow and mature and, and get victories and, and you, you go from the minors to the majors. God specializes in changing our lives. And we're in good company too because you look throughout scripture, we celebrate the fact that God steps in and does his greatest work in changing the life of a man or a woman. You think about a guy like Peter who could have finished as a failure. He denied Jesus. And yet Jesus, after the resurrection, seeks Peter out and says, I'm going to restore you. And he is no longer a failure. He is a faithful warrior to the end. Aren't you glad for that change in Peter's life? How about Paul, guy we've been looking at for, for a while now, who went from the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest promoter of the church. And no one would look at these lives like a guy like Peter or Paul and, 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 and attribute anything that happened in them or through them apart from the work of God. And here's what I'm excited about. That same God that works in us is the same God that worked then. That God wants nothing more to do with us than to change us. To conform us into the image of Christ. To, to help us understand the labels that the, one, the world once kind of threw upon us. Now our identity is not found in what other people think about us. It's, it's what's found in how God thinks about us. And so we turn to the scriptures. Acts 19 is where we're going to be this morning. So turn your Bibles there. 
And we're going to see this dynamic power at work. And the, and the word really is power. And, it, and it's no accident that we're talking about power while Paul in this passage today is in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is a place where Paul spent a lot of his time. Probably the longest ministry he ever had was in Ephesus. And this is where he writes to the Ephesian church where we get the letter of, Eph of the Ephesians. So, and I make that note because Ephesians is about power. And there's a reason why Paul talks about power because Ephesus was all about power, but it was about wrong power. It was into magic. It was into the occult. It was into false uh, religious systems and, and, and theology. It was, the, it was a city that housed one of the greatest marvels in the, in the ancient world. It's known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. Larger than a football field, 60-foot pillars, about 120 of them that surrounded this place, and it was, it was enshrined in, within this temple was this multi-breasted god named Artemis or Diana. And, the, and from this temple, which was the, the center of the city, would come all these temple prostitutes, uh, would come all these magic and occultic beliefs, and Ephesus was just swimming in all this uh, occultism. And here you find Paul spending the majority of his, uh, his time ministering to these people who were believing in magic and the occult and horoscopes and astrology and you name it. And he's speaking to them about the true power because worldly power will fail you. Power found in Christ will never fail you. And this is what Paul wants us to be thinking about as we see this, this uh, picture of power here in the book of Acts. So turn there in your Bibles, open up your notes, and uh, we're going to take a few few copious notes here because there's some interesting scenes here. I almost think like this is like Twilight Zone episode type stuff in the Bible. You ever read the Bible and go, what the heck is going on here? This seems a little too bit too strange to be true. Um, but it all has to do with power and the world power versus God's power and the power he wants to enact in our lives to change us. Um, and God's power, like I said, never works apart from his word. God's work is always connected to his word. And we see this right out of the bat. So turn your Bibles, Acts 19. We're going to start at verse 8. We're going to go to verse 20. Let's read it in its entirety, and we'll go back and look at some of the, the main points that I think are really, really important for us to, 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 to look at this morning. So Acts 19, starting at verse 8. So Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for about two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, that would be a cool group to hang out with, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, 
I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued them, all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, for fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be about 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts. You see, all of you had the same response I did. Reading this, you're like, what is happening here? Almost sounds like Twilight Zone meets Ghostbusters meets some sort of religious healing channel. I don't know. Let's make sense of this together. Let's go back to, to verse 8. First point I think we need to consider is this, is that there's this power of kingdom conversations. And you see this in verse 8 and verse 9. What is key to Paul's ministry is going to the synagogues and beginning a conversation with people who are already familiar with Scripture. So there is a power in kingdom conversations because people are spiritual creatures. People are interested in dialogue. And so Paul shows us how powerful our words are, and even writes to the Ephesians. I'm going to throw out a few little Ephesians references, so write these down. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says this. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. How many of us need to hear that verse today, huh? Because sometimes, you know, and, and this is the thing, right? Abraham Lincoln, great or greatest philosopher, huh? Uh, pretty amazing. He says the tongue is the only tool that grows sharper with constant use. James chapter 3, if you want to read the chapter about the tongue in the Bible, he says, with your tongue, you either bless or condemn people. There's no middle ground. And so I think that the idea of this power of kingdom conversations is important. Because we have a message, we are entrusted with something so important, so valuable. I think we need to consider how we speak to one another. And this is what Paul does so well. He takes the word of God and he becomes a messenger of God's truth, of God's word, because there's nothing else that saves men and women, right? There's not like, hey, I'm going to share with you this Twitter thing or this, 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 you know, this article I found. Like, no, the word of God is what saves men and women. God does not work apart from his word. His word contains the gospel. Paul's taking the gospel. So we see in verse 8, he goes to the synagogue, he's engaging in these conversations, and he does it, and he's going to engage the mind and the heart. This is right in verse 8, you have two words, circle them in your Bible, he's reasoning and persuading. Now I love these two words, because I think these two words encapsulate what our kingdom conversations should look like. What does reasoning mean? It means, I want you to consider something. It's a very apologetic in its approach. And what I mean by apologetics is this. You're defending the faith and you're testing other worldviews, belief systems in light of who Christ is, what Christ has, has said, what Christ has done, what the Bible says. And I'm going to tell you right now, 
I have rarely not had opportunities to talk to people who may not share the Christian faith, but are open to conversation. I do know that people will be turned off if you come, across, come at them a little too abrasively or aggressively. But if, I if you approach them with grace and graciousness and kindness and compassion, people are willing to have a, have a, have a dialogue. You guys remember a, a character on the show The Office, Dwight Schrute? You guys remember Dwight Schrute? What was it? Beats, Bears, and Battlestar Galactica? Yeah, that was his thing, right? Uh, office, great show or greatest show? Anyone? Like some of you are like, Scott, I love Jesus. I don't watch shows like that. <laughs> well, you should. It's great. It's one of the best shows. So, um, so Dwight Schrute grew up in, a, in the Baha'i faith. And uh, he's, he's now just written a book called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Now, what's interesting about this is it first caught my eye because Twitter has been lit up with this little one-minute little soundbite from an interview with Rain Wilson. That's the, that's the actor, his real name, Rain Wilson. And they said, listen to Rain talk about spirituality and Jesus. I go, ooh, I'm always interested to see what people think about Jesus. Well, the one-minute clip didn't say anything about Jesus, so I felt like I was totally led astray on this. But he is talking about spirituality, but he's not talking about Jesus. But here's what I appreciate about Rain Wilson. He wants to have a conversation about spirituality. But I'm going to tell you right now, every conversation about spirituality is going to leave you empty if it doesn't conclude in the personal work of Jesus Christ. You can read this book, and I would maybe encourage you to do it. But I've heard him interviewed beyond the Twitter one-minute clip, and he doesn't talk about anything about Christ. He doesn't talk about anything about the Bible. As a matter of fact, he says we should come up with our new religion and, and, and celebrate beauty and celebrate the art. And I'm sitting there going, well, why are those things important? Can you truly have beauty? Can you truly celebrate art apart from the author of beauty? and the creator of, of art. And so here's a guy, Rain Wilson, Dwight Schrute, who's basically saying we should have more spiritual conversations, and I agree with that. But let me just tell you, unless those conversations lead us to Jesus, they will be futile dialogues. Write that down in your notes. As you're talking to people, how does God want you to take perhaps some of your conversations you're having and lead people to Christ? Now, here's what we do know, and we've talked about this before. Paul always starts where people are at. Paul always says, where are you at? What do you believe? What do you think? And then he thinks of creative ways to start with where they're at and build a bridge ultimately to Jesus. This takes time. This takes practice. This takes knowing your audience. But the goal, and you should be praying for this, is always to somehow bring it to conclude in the personal work of Jesus. Because I'll tell you what, there's people that will talk all their lives about spirituality and will continue to leave empty-handed and empty-hearted because they don't know the fulfillment of all things, desires, emotions, feelings in our, in our lives unless they conclude in Christ Jesus. Amen? So Paul is in the synagogue. He's talking. He's reasoning. But he's also persuading. So reasoning, if reasoning is the consideration part of our conversations, would you consider this? The persuading is getting someone to be convinced that they commit to Christ. And we should be praying for both. Lord, help us have dialogue with people about spiritual matters, spiritual issues. Help me figure out how we can talk about Jesus in all this. And then secondly, 
let me encourage them to commit to him. Intellectual assent will not get you eternal life. Intellectual assent will not get you to heaven. We have a lot of people who think about God and we think about Jesus, but until this permeates our hearts and moves us to change our lives in light of who he is, we, we haven't done anything. So I think there's this sense of we need to get people to accept. The content of our message will never change. It's always about Christ. This message that, that the king has come into his world. Look at what Paul says here at the, ver- at the very end of verse 8. He's reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. There is a king who is choosing not to live apart from us, but has choose- chosen to enter our world and say, hey, there's a kingdom that's, that's being set up, and I want you to be a part of that kingdom because all other kingdoms will fall and fail. And so what an amazing truth this is. And we call this dialogue evangelism. Maybe write that down, conversational evangelism. I know for some of us, we think of evangelism as that, ooh, I hate evangelism. I'm, I'm not comfortable doing evangelism. Are you comfortable with having a conversation? Are you comfortable with having a dialogue? Because you never know how God will move in you and through you, through just the art of just having a back and forth talk with somebody. The gospel will change lives, right? It doesn't matter how articulate you are. It doesn't matter how, how, reason, how much reason you bring to the table, right? Just, just be available to share and watch God work. Paul does this, and he does it with the word of God. Can I remind you another passage from Ephesians? And it's not up on the screen. Write it down, 6.17, Ephesians 6.17. Part of our spiritual armor is the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon we have. So don't think you can engage people in a conversation apart from God's Word. Somehow it's got to come to bear on the dialogue, on the conversation. Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the only instrument we have to engage this dark world, to engage hearts that are far from Christ. So he's in the synagogue, verse 19, but some were becoming hard-hearted, which is eventually going to happen. Not everyone's going to be receptive to your message. But what's amazing is he he lasted three months in the synagogue. Good job, Paul. Usually he's chased out pretty quickly. He lasts three months, and eventually there's people that are deciding for Christ, and then there's people that are just like, you know what, I don't want to hear this anymore. They drive him out. Where does he go? He goes to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. The Hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus means tyrant. Now, I wonder if it's his parents that gave him that name. I don't know. Were they just cruel parents? And, but I think it was his students. He rents this hall, look at verse 9, called the School of Tyrannus. And here's what I love about Paul. There's no dead ends in Paul's life. He says, well, I'm going to continue to talk about Jesus. If they don't want to hear it in the synagogue, I'm going to find some other place to talk about it. And so and behold, the School of Tyrannus opens up. Now, a little side note. Tyrannus, we don't know if he owned the building and just rented it out or if he was a philosopher. But here's what you need to understand about Mediterranean culture. Every single day, they would have a siesta. You thought the Mexicans had all the fun, didn't you, when it comes to the siesta. In Mediterranean life, they would work till 11 a.m., and then they would take a siesta till 4 p.m. Who wants that schedule in their lives? They go and nap and eat and just rest, and then they go back to work at 4 and work till probably 9 or 10 at night. But there was a five-hour gap in the middle of the day 
where people would just go and just and rest. So what Paul did is he went to Tyrannus, and he said, I want to use your hall. And Tyrannus said, you bet. It's available from 11 to 4. Every day, Paul would lecture for five hours from the hall of Tyrannus the gospel of Jesus Christ. How long did he do it for? Was it say two years? If he takes a Sabbath, which I, Paul did, because we all need to rest, he would have lectured over 3,100 hours the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Paul would not let up. Could you say he was uh, aggressive? Yes, and it's a good aggressive. Because Paul was called to be a minister to the Gentiles so that they would hear the message that God loves them in Jesus Christ. And so for 3,100 plus hours, Paul did not let up. He was working as a leather worker so that his leather work could feed his lecture work. His lecturing would go on, and then he'd go back to work. This guy did this six days a week. And I sit there, and I look at my life, and I go, what am I complaining about? What am I like, oh, I got to do this again? I got to take the kids to school? I got to mow the lawn? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Like, this guy is tirelessly working to have kingdom conversations because why? He knows eternity is at stake. He knows that there are men and women, even in Ephesus, who are believing in magic and the occult and false temple worship, and they're not satisfied. Why? Because those things will never satisfy you. So Paul gets the opportunity to share about Jesus continually. Here's my encouragement to you. Keep on sharing. Keep on explaining. Keep on applying. Wherever you go, there's no substitute for the Word of God. Because according to Psalm 19, verse 7, write this down. It is the Word of the Lord that revives the soul. Amen? This guy, Paul, wow. What determination. What, what a desire to see people come to know Christ. And he does it in a very secular place. Can I just make a note? Most of what God is going to do in this world is going to be outside the church building. Can I just get on my little soapbox real quick? This is what I'm continually trying to do in 13 years of ministry at Sozo Coffee with a community called Missio Day is that for us to understand God's major work does not happen here on Sunday morning. It happens outside of this place Monday through Saturday. Paul's effectiveness was not in the synagogue necessarily, he was more effective outside the religious building as he engaged people in kingdom conversations. Can I tell you, this is part of what growth track stuff in May is about. How do we take the church out? How do we be the church out there? How do we take the message out there? Because ladies and gentlemen, you can invite people to church all you want, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we are largely ineffective of the invite and getting them into the building, and we're more effective of us going out and being the church out there Monday through Saturday as we interact with people. This is what God wants. He doesn't call us to go the church, to go to church. He calls us to be the church and have those kingdom conversations. So his longest ministry would happen in Ephesus. Matter of fact, at the end of first. Corinthians chapter 16, here's what Paul would say. 
I will stay in Ephesus for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Paul loved his time in Ephesus. Three years he would spend in the city. Longest ministry Paul would have. But here's why. Point number two, there's this power of kingdom conquering. As the gospel goes forth and transforms lives, the message of Christ is spreading all over the Mediterranean world. So much so, look at verse 10, and this is one of those kind of head-scratching verses. You sit there and go, really? Look at the impact of the kingdom conversations. Verse 10, and this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Are you kidding me? Everyone heard. Why? Because as Paul would lecture, teach, equip, mobilize the saints, there are men and women that had heard. There's this guy teaching things that are unlike anything you've ever heard before. They're taking that message back to their towns and their cities. And the entire region known as Asia at this time, which would be Asia Minor, the size of California but more populated, would hear the gospel. This is during the time when the, the churches of Revelation were started. If you look at Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven churches mentioned there. Those seven churches started out of Paul's lecturing at the Hall of Tyrannus. And the first church mentioned in those those churches in Revelation is what? Ephesus. But the message is spreading. And here's what I love about being employed with God's work. The church will grow and the gates of hell will never stand against it. Can I get an amen from somebody? Ladies and gentlemen, your plans will fail. God never promises to build up your kingdoms, your plans. Your... He intends to do his work and build his church. And here's the promise given to us in Matthew 16. Write down, look at it later. Y'all probably familiar with it. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, upon your confession, I will build my church. This is not him being installed as the first pope, FYI. It's his confession that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and that whatever is done in the name of Christ will not fail. Can I just say right now, the assurance you have at the end of the day is doing what God wants you to do according to his will, according to his plan, because the moment you start doing your thing, there's no confidence or assurance in that. He's going to build his church. His plan will conquer. Does that... That encourages me because it seems like there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of adversaries. There's a lot of opposition out there. And it almost feels like God's losing. I'm going to tell you right now, at the end of the day, God will never lose. His plan will always prevail. He's going to build his church. And when you're involved in that work of building his church, you need to have that assurance. Paul is like, I'm, I'm going to keep preaching the word. He had one method of building church. It's the word of God. I'm just going to keep teaching. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep teaching. I'm going to keep encouraging. I'm going to keep exhorting. And I'm going to continue to uh, equip you and mobilize you for the work of ministry because nothing can stand in the way of God building his church. How can we, how can we have such confidence? Well, he writes about this to the Ephesians church, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at these verses up here, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Can you just stop and get an amen on that one? 
We forget that, don't we? We live as spiritual paupers, and you are spiritual princes and princesses. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The problem is we're not tapping into that. We're feeding off the world's food, and we're not feeding off God's food. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, which means you lack nothing in Christ. Amen? He has chosen, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Meaning he's got a plan. He's executing that plan. There are many people in this city that do not know Christ yet. And nothing will stop them from knowing Christ because he has chosen them before the foundation of the world. Woo! That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He's predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know what that verse says to me? These verses say to me? Security. You know what those verses say to me? God's got a plan and nothing's going to stop his plan. You know what those verses say to me? Certainty. You know what those verses say to me? Assurance. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps we lack confidence because we're not tapping into the truths of Ephesians 1. Perhaps we lack vision because we get sidetracked. We give God an hour and a half on Sunday. Good job. Even the pagans and heathens do that. But it's acknowledging this and it's living in this during the rest of our week that we sit there and go, wow. God is using me, he's changing me, his powers that work within me to do something far beyond me for his glory and for his kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, stop being so short-sighted. Stop being so self-focused. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all other things shall be what? Added unto you. You know who said that? Abraham Lincoln. No, Jesus said that. <laughs> All to be part of something that is beyond us. To be involved in something that ultimately glorifies God is part of his kingdom plan. Again, Growth Tracks next month is our way, the leadership team here at Missio, of recognizing we can do better in equipping and mobilizing the saints for the work of ministry. That's Ephesians chapter 4, FYI. Write down Ephesians 4, look at it later. You cannot sit in church and be that person that says, I don't have to do ministry, that's why we pay you, pastor, to do the work of ministry. And I said, they go, oh, contraire. <laughs> you have been saved to serve. You have been saved to give. You have been saved to teach. You have been saved to, you have been saved for doing other things other than just sit on your spiritual butt. Can I get an amen from somebody? God does not like hemorrhoids building on his kids, all right? So it's time to get up, get exercising for the Lord to do his work because here's the thing. He has called each of us to be mobilized and to serve him in some capacity. If 87% of people sit in our churches, they don't know what their spiritual gifts are and how they're going to serve the Lord, I sit there and go, those are horrible numbers and no wonder it seems like the gospel is largely ineffective in our culture. We want to be a change to that. Growth groups, pray for us. Pray for those times together in May on Sundays. Pray for the times beyond those Sundays in May for one another. Because if we believe strongly in what we're going to teach, the conquering aspect of God's kingdom is just going to be further dove into and expanded and experienced. And I'm praying for great things. Point number three. But don't think that without, with God's expansion, there's not going to be opposition, right? Think about this. The power 
in kingdom conflict. And we'll, we'll change that preposition from of to in. The kingdom, the power in kingdom conflict. So we see this happening, and there's going to be three things that we're going to talk about real quick. Look at verse 11. And God was performing extraordinary miracles. I, I'm wondering what are the ordinary miracles? Isn't it funny that he would use the word extraordinary? Like, but really what Luke's saying is that there are different kinds of miracles that you're going to see here that are, and, and notice the language, they're descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? Don't take one verse out of the Bible and build a church on it. Don't take one verse out of the Bible and, and all of a sudden build this theology around it. These are isolated incidents that Luke includes for us so that we get a description of how God was working, and it's not prescription of how the church should be for the next 2,000 years. So God is doing these extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, and mind you, Paul's a busy cat. He's working, leatherworking. His leatherworking is giving him lecture work. His lecture work then leads to more leatherworking. He's doing this from sunup to sundown. He is a busy dude. No wonder God works through this man's humility, his honesty, his hard work. And how does he work through the person of Paul, this apostle? It's called the sign of the apostle. You find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, where God did sometimes miraculous things like Peter's shadow falling on someone and healing them. You remember that from Acts chapter 5? Remember when the woman touched the hem of Jesus' robe who was having this uncontrollable bleeding and she touched his robe and she was healed? See, sometimes God does something because he understands that the, 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 the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. They would take Paul's sweaty garments and touch these people with his headband, his handkerchief, his apron that he had labored all day in. And he would, they would be touched with it and they would be healed. This is not as some preachers I've seen, a way for you to build up your ministry by calling in or, or, or tapping into their website and being like, if you go ahead and provide a seed of faith gift, $10, $20, $50, I will send you a handkerchief. And that handkerchief will have my face on it. Or that handkerchief will have my handprint on it. And then you take that hand, handkerchief and you apply it to your forehead and and you can ask God whatever you want, and he will deliver, and he will heal. Can I tell you right now, this is where spiritual abuse, abuse happens. Because usually it's men and women who believe in this malarkey, who are given everything they've got to a preacher promising them the world, and they end up getting nothing. Why? Because they're believing in Christian magic, and there's no such thing as Christian magic. See, Paul is being used by God directly or indirectly to, to do something that is very extraordinary, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. Why? Because there were people coming to know Jesus right and left. And these people were being delivered of their physical infirmities. They were be, being delivered of these, these, uh, these spirits. This is one, one thing that Paul came up against, and yet God is going to build his church. He's going to overcome these sicknesses and these diseases and this, these demon possessions. So three things I want us to look at real quick. Number one is the first in kingdom conflict is this. Disbelief is encountered. We already saw that. 
that there are people that are not going to accept your message. There are going to be people who reject the message of Christ. Paul's used to this. This is part and parcel of, 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 of what we're involved in when it comes to preaching Jesus. There's going to be some people that just like, nope, it's not for me. Um, in all this, I want you to write down Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians 6, verse 12 reminds us that your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. How many of us need to be reminded that your battle is not against government? Your battle is not against your neighbor? Your battle is not against your, your kid's kindergarten teacher? You know, we just need to realize these things. Our battle is against something that is unseen that can only be fought with the offensive weapon given to us, and that's the word of God. So this pops up in the three things. So back to the, the three things again. And sorry, I'm jumping all over the point de uh, place, Debbie. So there's disbelief that's encountered. We just continue to love people. We continue to pray for them. Not everyone's going to believe our message, and that's okay. And notice that they were disbelieving because they just considered the way not for them. Go back to verse 9 real quick. They were speaking evil of the way. The way is the, what the church was called in the book of Acts five times. And you know why we're called the way? Because we know a person who calls himself the way, and there's a path called the way, and that path is narrow. Remember what Jesus says, there's a path that's narrow that leads to eternal life? But you cannot be on the path called the way unless you know the person who is the way, the truth, the life. John 14, verse 6. So you're going to come across people who do not believe that Jesus is the way, and they're not going to walk the path that's narrow that's called the way. That's to be expected. Point number two is this. There's deliverance experience. Again, back to the sweaty headbands, because I know that's all what you guys want to talk about. Paul is working tirelessly. He's in this lowly trade, and God is using this miraculous instance to heal people. God's hands all over Paul's life. People are being transformed. Faith, faith healers that abuse these moments like this are going to be judged severely. Ladies and gentlemen, do not expect miracles like this to happen. I'm going to tell you right now, miracles are rare in the Bible. I think we, we come to the Bible and we think miracles like this occur all the time. Someone once said we can group the miracles of the Bible into three major seasons. There's the time of Moses, there's the time of Elijah and Elisha, and there's the time of Jesus. If you were to summarize all the miracle seasons of the Bible, you can summarize them into about 100 or less instances of miracles taking place in the Bible. And we live in such a world that wants miracles so bad we think they happen all the time. I'm going to tell you right now, here's what the Bible says is the greatest miracle of all, and that's a changed life of a person in Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle of all is a man or a woman that, who has a heart of stone that miraculously by the Spirit is changed into a heart of flesh. Don't hear what I'm not saying because some of you are like going, Pastor Scott, how can you say this? We, we want to pray for miracles. We want to pray for people to be healed. We want to pray for people to be delivered. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm going to tell you most often than not, here's what God says. Trust me. Walk with me. Pray to me, obey me, glorify me, whether I deliver you or not. The greatest miracle is not now just a changed life in Christ. It's a life that continues to trust when sometimes our prayers seem to go unanswered. Stop expecting some outlandish miracle. 
And stop listening to pastors, preachers, teachers that are promising you things that probably will not happen. Pray that you will submit to God's revealed will in the Bible. Pray that you walk by the Spirit and pray that you pursue godly wisdom. That's all God expects of you. And probably the greatest miracle is to trust Him when it seems hopeless, hopeless to trust Him. That's what God wants to do. What's happening here is truly descriptive, not prescriptive. Which leads us to the third point of conflict, and it's this. It's darkness is energized. Look at this next scene. This is a really interesting scene. We'll, uh, we'll just dive into this for a brief bit. Verse 13, but some of the Jewish exorcists saw that was going on. Wait, sweaty headbands? Aprons? Handkerchiefs? Are, are healing people? This is truly a magic that we haven't been a part of yet. And let me just tell you, when people think about profit, greed, popularity, they're all willing to join Team Jesus. But it is dangerous to try to get on Team Jesus without knowing Jesus. These exorcists see what's going on. They went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus. Whom Paul preaches. And I like how they kind of, you know, put, add name to name, right? It's not just Jesus, but it's Paul. They want to make sure all their bases are covered. Look what happens in verse 14. And the seven sons of Sceva. That sounds like a cool name for a rock band, right? What band are you part of? Seven sons of Sceva, bro. Yeah. So here are the sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, which he was probably a self-identified chief priest because we have a record of all the chief priests, and he wasn't named among them. But he's got seven boys... Seven sons of Sceva, who are like the Ghostbusters of Ephesus. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. And I'm sure when you called them on the phone, they're like, this is Sceva, 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 Sceva. Do you have any demons that we can cast out, right? Can you imagine this group of people traveling all over Ephesus thinking they're going to cast out demons? And what happens is that they want to get on Team Jesus without knowing Jesus, which is dangerous. And they go to a guy, and they're ready to cast him out, uh, the, uh, the demon out of this guy. And the demon responds, and how does he respond? I know Jesus, and I'm aware of Paul, but who are you? And I think at that moment, you hear the loudest gulp in Ephesus. The demon leaps on all seven of them and literally obliterates them. I'm going to ask you right now, who do you think lost this battle? Because if you go into a fight wearing pants and you leave with no pants on, I'm going to tell you, you're the guy that lost. And not only did they leave naked, but they were wounded. What does that mean? I think their pride was wounded. I think their egos were wounded. I think they were mentally and psychologically wounded, right? I've seen naked men in Indian cities before. This is really weird, right? And you just know that something is off here. And so what about these other people that are watching these naked guys run through town crying, screaming, right? It's like, there go those naked guys again, thinking they can do the Lord's work, right? And they couldn't. Here's what's amazing. The demons know Jesus. The demons know Paul. You got to stop and go, do the demons know me? Do the demons know you? You realize the first group to identify Jesus in his earthly ministry were the demons. They were the ones to accurately identify Christ. So it makes sense that they would be acquainted with Jesus. 
But are they aware of you? Are you doing so much for the kingdom of God that even the demons are aware of your activity? Because they had no clue who these guys were. Why? Because they didn't know the king. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the Messiah. And they, and they suffered for it. Can I, can I just tell you right now, you know what these demons teach us? These demons teach us a valuable lesson that Jesus will not allow his name to be reduced to some magic formula. You know what these demons teach us? That so many of us probably have embraced this voodoo Christianity. That God will give me what I want if I only go to church. That God will do whatever I want him to do if I just read his Bible. God will do what, and we just think that God is in the business of just catering to all our whims and wishes. And I'm going to tell you right now, the name of Christ is not magnified when you're seeking your own popularity, your own greed, your own selfishness. When this demon who you would think would be working against Christ is actually working for Christ in a very indirect way, the demonic activity that's energized in this moment actually ends up magnifying Christ more. Look what, look what happens in verse 16 and 17. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say this to you. Christians confess Christ because we have a commitment to him. He is our Lord and Savior. Think about what he's done for us. You realize that demons confess Christ. Not because they're committed to him, because out of conviction they understand who he is. Even the demons believe and shudder, James says. Can I just tell you right now, spiritual warfare is nothing to be trifled with. Your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against unseen forces at work. May we evaluate our hearts. May we just sit there and go, have I reduced my walk with Christ to be some magic formula? Like God, God's our big genie in a bottle. Just ask him whatever you want. He'll give you all the desire. No, we don't go to God like that. We revere his holy name. We respect his holy character and nature. We fear him in a good, healthy way. But power is not given to you to do whatever you want. Power is known in knowing Christ. And now that power is the power to live a life that glorifies him that leads to consecration, a set-apartness that says you are different than anyone else in this world. And we hold that with sobriety. We hold this with humility. The sons of Sceva realize this. And yet Christ's name is magnified. Without Jesus, you're powerless. Can I just tell you right now, without Christ, you are powerless. But with him, wow, wow. There's this power that leads us to our last point, and we're done with this. Look at verse uh, 18. But many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. I would call this maybe a filter moment. Howard, you talked about filters, right? Here are people in a major city coming clean with all the things they used to do in secret. So much so, look at verse 19 that many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all, and they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. What that amounts to today 
are 50,000 days of work. So whatever you get paid for a day's work, it's 50,000 days worth of work. I'm estimating 8 to $10 million that people willingly, joyfully set ablaze. Which is our last point, the power of kingdom convictions. When Christ becomes your treasure, no earthly treasure can compare to having him. And whatever you used to do in secret is no longer hidden, but there's a willingness to disclose it and bring it into the light. Because this is called the walk of sanctification. This is called a walk of consecration. This is why Paul would write to the Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 11. Listen to these words. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now check this out. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And I'm sure Paul is writing these words, remembering this moment. When people said, I have nothing to hide. I've got nothing. You cannot confess Christ and cling to sin. You cannot confess Christ and continue to cling to the things that used to define you in your old life. You are a new creation in Christ, amen? And so now when you confess Christ, you sit there and go, what can I consecrate to the Lord now and forever? What did I used to lean on for security? What did I used to lean on for identity? What did I used to lean on for satisfaction that are no longer going to be those things because Christ alone delights. Christ alone brings joy. Christ alone brings life. So now what am I willing to bring into the light that I once hid in the darkness? This is why probably the the words of James are so crazy to think about. Confess your sins to one another. When was the last time you confessed your sins to one another? So I was like, I don't want to do that. That's scary. No, it's not. It's liberating. Because when you realize before God, you cannot hide. And now he gives you the assurance that you're his child. Come to me and confess. How many of you read 1 John this week? Some of you took me up on my homework assignment from last week. Two of you, good. God bless you. If you say you dwell in the light yet live in the darkness, you're a liar. I mean, this is like First John. He cuts right to the chase. Don't say you, 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 you don't have any sin. Come clean. Come clean. I wonder what this looks like in community. A few of us have discussed this and been like, whoa, wouldn't that be amazing like, for all of us to come to, this, to the table and say, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm holding on to this and I don't want this to be in my life anymore. I used to, once th- I, I used to think this brought me Bring, bring me joy, and it no longer brings me joy because I have joy in Christ, and that just brings me down. What are the things that you are hiding in darkness that God says bring to the light? I want to encourage you, like, like Howard encouraged you. Who are those people that are in your life, in your corner, that perhaps today's the day where you expose those things you held in darkness, and they're really a bondage upon your heart, your soul, your spirit, and God is saying, confess them expose them, leave nothing unturned. Because before God, there's forgiveness and healing. And with one another, there should be grace and kindness and compassion. What does this look like? 
What does this even look like in our church community? What does it mean for repentance before Christ to cost us everything? Do we think that there's something we're hiding that's more valuable than having Jesus? I'm going to tell you right now, that's a sin. And it needs to be exposed. Let me close with something a little more uplifting. Because some of you are like, man, this is... <laughs> My parents used to tell me all the time growing up, you know, clean your room. Take a shower. <laughs> you know, mow the lawn, right? And, and, I, and I never felt like I wanted to do these things. But when that first girlfriend comes into your life, all of a sudden things start changing. You feel like taking a shower. <laughs> and even wearing cologne, right? Like it's like uh, you, you feel like, you know, washing the car and making it clean. You, you, you feel like cleaning up your room, right? Why? Because there's this new love in your life. And everything your parents used to bark orders at you to do, you didn't want to do. But now there's something that's changed your affections. And you want to do these things. What greater love is there than the love of Jesus poured out within our hearts that now says, you know, all those things that people used to bark at you about, now I want you to do these things. You're like, I'll do them. To do the will of God joyfully, oh, that's evidence of a new affection. To, to bring these things out into the light and to clean up your life because he wants something better for you than what you think you want for yourself, that's a new affection. Can we praise God for new affections? Amen. So an interesting scene, verse 20, and the word of God continued. Notice how the word of God is instrumental in all this. This is why I'll never apologize for giving you guys too much scripture. I will never continue. I will never not. That's a double negative. I will always point you to the word. Because look at verse 10 and look at verse 20. It's the word of God that is accomplishing God's mission. And when the word of God is in the hands of the women, men and women of God, the kingdom of God is built. The kingdom of God is expanded. And it does it mightily, and it prevails. Circle that word prevail. Ooh, that's good. Man, to be a part of Christ's team, to know him, there's no other place that you would rather be than with him. Pray that God has worked on our hearts, spoken to us somehow. Some way. We've covered a lot of material, so you guys have done well. Let's stand. Let's pray. We'll pray for that deer in the headlights look from some of you. Father, thank, thank you for your truth. Thank you for this scene out of Acts. Lord, I pray we wouldn't just relegate it to history, but we would consider the timeless truths you would have us wrestle with and embrace. There's some really rich scenes here. But they're meant to inspire, encourage, perhaps exhort us. Thank you that we know the way and that we're walking in the way. And Lord, I do know that there's still some things that ensnare us and entangle us by your strength. And with the help of the Spirit, will you help us continue to clear out the clutter that's helping us really pursue Christ like we should in our lives? Because I do know that as we consecrate ourselves more to, to Jesus, 
it's, it's going to really speak to those in our lives who probably are, are far from Christ, but they're going to see something in us. May, may that consecration act as an opportunity to share the hope that's in us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your kingdom work. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. Thank you for loving us as much as you do. Help us to live our lives for your glory. Pointing to Jesus the entire way. Keep it in step with the Spirit. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. Love you guys.